morning, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Summertime Bit Boys. I am James. I'm Blake. And this week we are back to our regular schedule, and we are talking about something very near and dear to the both of us. Wouldn't you agree, Blake? Oh, I'd 100% agree. So this week, uh, if you haven't guessed by the intro jingle that would be at the start of this episode or the title itself, we are talking about the Sega Dreamcast, the little machine that never could. So uh, just a little bit of context before we get in for some people who might not know what the Dreamcast is. Uh, When the Sony PlayStation and the Nintendo 64 released in around 95 and 96, I believe, Sega had their entry in that generation as the Saturn, which just wasn't doing very well because Nintendo were doing their cartridge-based things and Sony had opted for uh, machine and disc-based hardware that specialized in 3D graphics, whereas the Sega Saturn uh, had two processors, I believe, and kind of was still banking on 2D being the big thing. So it became incredibly hard to program 3D games for, and more often than not, ports of Sony games onto that system were, if not inferior, just a little bit more janky because of the workarounds they had to have. Well, another part of it was that, remember, Sony had worked with Nintendo previously before making the PlayStation, so they had a bit of a leg up in terms of getting some third-party support for their console, whereas even though the Saturn jumped in after, was it the 32X? It was like the Genesis, then you had the CD, then you had the 32X, I believe. Yeah. Uh, a lot of third-party support for Sega was starting to die off because Sony started to make up a lot more for themselves. They also had that ridiculously low licensing cost. I think it was something like $10. Yeah, $10. So Sega's was still pretty premium, like Nintendo's. Yeah, because they were still banking on the fact that they were one of the the top two back in the day. And exactly. uh, also, obviously, Sega had lost a lot of goodwill with the 32X and the Sega CD from buyers as well. Yeah. Because people were kind of apprehensive of, oh, it's a Sega console, should I buy it? It might be outdated in a, in a couple of months or something like that. So... Yeah. Basically, the Saturn essentially died on its ass. I don't know about you. I only knew one person in my friend's circle who had it. Never had a Saturn. Never knew anyone who owned one. I want one, though. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, they only had, like, the most stereotypical Sony... uh, It's not Sony, sorry. The Sega titles you can think of. Like, I think the only three games I ever played were good games. Uh, They had Virtua Fighter, Virtua Cop, and Daytona. Yeah, they also had the original, uh, was it Panzer Dragoon? Yeah, uh, my friend didn't oh, have and, that one, unfortunately. Was it also Knights? Oh, Knights, yeah, which would later become Knights into Dreams. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically, needless to say, in the UK, it wasn't a very big hit. I think it was pretty much the same in America. Yeah. Um, so that led Sega to basically, well not look forwards so much as to look how they could get a leg up, which caused them to create the Dreamcast, which in its inception was called the Katana. And then they polled, I think they did a large poll and the name Dreamcast yeah. won out. Yeah, because it's a portmanteau of Dream plus Broadcast because yeah. they had the modem implemented in the system, thus Dreamcast. So when the Dreamcast dropped in, I think it was November 98 in Japan, 
Uh, and I think it was 2000, it'd be 99 or 2000 for the rest of the world. No, in America, it was September 9th, 1999. Oh, yeah, was that was it. Yep. Because we had marketing, which was, uh, what was it, 9999 for, uh, what was it, 199. Yeah. That, that was something so that every kid remembered on the schoolyard. <laughs> so, yeah, they dropped that. And obviously, when it came out, and it was, uh, I remember walking into my local game and seeing the <clears throat> demo booth or whatever they were called. Uh, playing Soul Calibur, and I remember the main tout of every kind of employee who'd been stuck next to it is like, oh, that's not a cutscene, that's all rendered in real time, that's what the game looks like, and it was mind-blowing at the time, because you got to remember that uh, this is the PlayStation, and the best we'd seen off the PlayStation was things like Metal Gear Solid, and uh, as much as I liked the N64, it never its games never really looked that good. Well yeah. But um one thing about the Dreamcast I wanna say is an important point about the Dreamcast that it's also part of the sixth gen cycle, which means that it's still part of PlayStation Two, Xbox and GameCube, even yep. though it came out first. And I think that's gonna be important for later, not to mention another aspect of Dreamcast, if you recall, is that they did have the Sega logo on it. But I don't know about the UK, but in America, the Sega logo, I believe, was in the front of the console, a lower left, and it was a very light gray color. And supposedly, they didn't want to mark Sega all over it because they were afraid that people yeah. saw Sega because of the Saturn, the 32X, and Sega City. People wouldn't buy it. So the idea was to be like, mm, it's Sega, but that's kind of hush-hush. Yeah, no, it was the same in the UK. It had like uh, the little grayed out emblem on the front. And as you said, that kind of worked for me because I I had to like check a picture when you said that because I always remembered at the bottom right it said Windows CE at the bottom yeah so that's the thing I remember because I was like huh that's the computer thing isn't it yeah so I was more interested in why this console said Windows on it rather than the fact that it said Sega well this thing we should get into later because that's actually a big deal because you know led to other things yeah so the Dreamcast itself, obviously, it did a lot of firsts, and it had, basically, Sega was banking on this thing selling gangbusters before the competition could get their uh, machines to market, and initially it did. It outsold Nintendo, it broke the record of pre-orders um, by a fair bit against Sony, it had more than 200,000 orders placed, so it did succeed in what it had set out to do in the short term but uh i think the main problem they faced was a lot of people were holding out for the ps2 yeah which came out like what i believe at least in america about six or eight months later yeah it wasn't that far behind yeah so sega were banking on shifting units in that window i guess to kind of get a leg up and get an install base in there but the difference between at least uh, the Dreamcast versus the PlayStation 2 is Dreamcast, at least in America, was sold for 200 bucks versus, yeah. I believe, it was like 300 for PS2. Yeah. And on release day, we had 18 games, whereas the PlayStation 2, I think, had maybe 10. Yep. There was a lot more going for the Dreamcast just starting off the bat, which I think gave it kind of one of the strongest opening days if you compare to other consoles. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's... um very much a practice that still exists today that people will rush the console to market and then not think about 
kind of having a killer application or there'll be one that everyone has and then some usually ports or some third-party drivel that's just been shoveled out to try and... You know, you know what's ridiculous, though, about it is the uh, Dreamcast, when it was released in Japan in uh, 98, Sonic Adventure was supposed to come out on the same day, but due to some issue, it was released about a month later, oh. which is why, you know, they were like, ah, uh, maybe we should kind of stagger the release for the rest of the world, and then those early release consoles, um, they had an issue with the processor, so essentially, you could say the consoles were kind of red ringing in a sense. Yeah. So a lot of consoles had to be, you know, taken back and reissued, which it further did the delay for the West. It's supposed to come out in early 99, but they're like, all right, screw it. Let's make sure that there's a nice library ready for us from Japan and make sure there's no more issues with the console before release, release to the West because they didn't want to mess up like they did with Saturn. Yeah. So they kind of had a lot of problems out the gate. They did have a relatively successful install but inevitably uh, people were holding out for the PS2 and I believe one of the main reasons for that was DVD was becoming a thing yeah. obviously and Sony had the genius marketing idea and they did it again with the PS3 just not as successfully of saying well most DVD players are going to set you back 100 to 200 dollars we'll give you one with a games console attached for 300 yeah so that immediately out of the gate sold people who weren't even gamers because they were like, well, I can get more for this. Yeah, and people still do that to this day. Yep, pretty much, because a console will have a Blu-ray player or a DVD player inside for less. And uh, that basically was one of the major nails in Sega's coffin that they had a, some good software on there and a decent machine, but unfortunately it was just ahead of its time because I guess one of the main selling points at that point was this was the first 56k machine that used real-time online play yeah which is pretty crazy because at the time I believe it was like $15 to add in the modem and essentially marketing was like I don't think it's a good idea but uh, one of the CEOs of Sega was just like, no, we need to do it. We need to make sure that this has a leg up, which is why they made it more of a replaceable thing. So you remember you could place in an Ethernet modem yeah. instead later on. And it was a really damn smart move when you think about it. There's no other console which did it. PlayStation 2, you had to buy a separate modem. GameCube yep. as well. Uh, Xbox actually had that included. It was the only other one of that generation. So hats off to Dreamcast for being you know, ahead of its time, but also, uh, I don't think, I'm pretty sure you guys don't have this in the UK, it wouldn't make sense, but at least in uh, LA, we had something called Hollywood Video, which was the rival to Blockbuster, I don't mm. think it was all over the West, No. or, I shouldn't say West, I don't think it was all over America, anyways, so, what Sega did is they had like a little deal with Hollywood Video, so I believe it's about a month or a month and a half after release of the Dreamcast, you could actually rent the whole console at Hollywood Video exclusively. Oh, okay. And, you know, renting it, I think, was about, like, 20 bucks or so. And that also helped to sell units because people are like, oh, so I can try out this brand-new console, like, just for $20 for, like, three days, and I could get a game with it. I think it was, like, one free game rental. So people could try it out as much as they want, and then that would encourage people to buy. PlayStation 2 didn't have that, and I think that also gave Dreamcast in a sense, in the early part, a little bit of a leg up. I thought yeah. it was pretty smart. I oh, wish yeah. more consoles you could rent. I mean, 
On top of that as well, I remember going to the cinema when it was still relatively new, the Dreamcast, and some arcades, like cinema or bowling alley arcades, had those demo booths set up on free play. So you could awesome, go man. in. Yeah, you could go in and it would have like a demo disc on there with like three or four like different games with like a timer or a level on there. And I remember playing through the first level of uh, Sonic Adventure on that for free while I was waiting for the film to start. And I thought that was a fantastic idea of shoving it in an arcade and just going, yep, okay, have at it. Yeah, it was really smart how they used those demos, especially because you could play, you know, fairly long demos. I think Sonic Adventure, you played like two or three levels. Could yep. be wrong, but I thought you could play a few. Or you could play as multiple characters, ah, whatever it yeah. was. There was. Yeah, there was definitely some choice on there, and I don't remember there being a timer. So. Yeah. It was literally a case of if no one else was using it or waiting to use it, you had free reign of a new system for zero money, essentially, because you could just walk yeah. in and play it. But uh, one unique thing about the Dreamcast, I'm not sure if we mentioned it earlier, but um, you know, as a cost-saving measure, essentially the Dreamcast was a bunch of different recycled parts that Sega had to try and save money because the Sega Saturn actually... They were selling at a loss. It cost so much money to make the Sega Saturn. Yeah. And they had to make it cheaper and cheaper to keep up with PlayStation or the Dreamcast. Like, let's just try and create this Frankenstein machine. But it ended up just being this powerful little console. And they even included, what is it? The Naomi arcade hardware, which it, Naomi means like new arcade operational machine idea, mm. which is pretty amazing because that's what allowed the Dreamcast to do better ports of arcade games that outstripped you know the playstation 2 i think xbox did a way better job at porting arcade games than um playstation 2 did but it made a big big like leap because you could play games like capcom versus snk2 project justice uh dead or alive 2 ikaruga crazy taxi a bunch of other games and they would be pretty much the exact same qualities playing at the arcade whereas yeah playstation 2 it just wasn't a thing you couldn't get that same type of fidelity so you are right with all that. It was really good, but there was also one reason why the Dreamcast also lost out to the PlayStation was that whole uh, business between when they were choosing the GPUs. Because uh, I can't remember which one it was, but the there was the American-based one that um, was backed by EA. Like They'd sunk a lot of money into it. And basically, this company went ahead and announced, like they legally had to announce it, that uh, in the next fiscal year, they'd be partnering with Sega to create the GPU for their new machine. And for some strange reason, even though this was a legal requirement, this pissed Sega off. And they essentially turned around and went with the lesser-known Japanese-branded one, which severely gimped the power of the machine and also didn't make it as flexible as it could be. And then on top of that, they lost all support from EA. So, like, back in the day, EA was a big deal. They had, like, the sports market cornered with their yearly releases, and Sega got zero of that. So they had to make all of their own sports games. Yeah, but those sports games still live on to today, you know? Oh, yeah. You had, like, you know, NBA 2K. Like, all the whole entire 2K series was from the Dreamcast. Oh, yeah. So it was arguably pretty damn good. Yeah, I'm not saying that nothing good came out of it. It's just they'd severely limited their support in the West from one of the more hated but most prolific third-party developers in the market. 
But let's be honest here, you know, I think them not having any EA titles in their library helped keep the Dreamcast library so solid. Yeah. So I think that's a good point to move on to the library itself is that I think one of the main complaints people had about the Dreamcast was that it became somewhat of a console that was just full of arcade ports, which was fantastic for people like us who enjoy that kind of thing. But I can see how that would kind of put some other people off because it did have very few RPGs or adventure type games. They were all very quick, uh, arcade styled, like driving, sports, fighting type games. And they were everywhere and they were fantastic. But they still didn't really have all that many RPGs. I mean, off the top of my head, I can only think of Skies of Arcadia. There's Grandia too. Those ah. are the two big ones. And Grandia 2 and Skies of Arcadia were arguably some of the best RPGs of the day. Yeah, but there was so few of them. Oh, Fantasy Star Online, man. That's a big-ass deal. Because that was the first like online RPG on any console. I played that game religiously. Yeah, uh, I didn't. With Fantasy Star Online, I never got into it on the Dreamcast. I came in when the it got ported to the GameCube. So episode one and two were together. But yeah. yeah, I agree. Like I I don't think me and my brother ever got that game online once, but we sank God knows how many hundreds of hours playing it offline with our friends. It was so addictive. Oh, I loved it. And what was amazing was that I used to play on a 56K modem, but because everyone was playing on a 56K and the servers were you know, optimized for 56k users. Mm. I remember the experience didn't actually lag. I've always thought to myself growing up, I was like, damn, it was pretty incredible to think that the service, like, where is like, yeah, I get it. There would be some lagging here, there. But when you think about how slow 56k was, it was pretty stable for the most part. I remember when they started implementing more Ethernet, then shit started to get a lot more laggy. But in the mm. beginning, when everyone was on 56k, it was pretty stable. I never got kicked out. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, unfortunately, like I said, I was a bit late to the Dreamcast party. I kind of picked mine up after it was already on its way out because the prices were just crashing. I mean... What year I, did you pick it up? Oh, God. It must, must have been after 2000. Been like 2001, 2002. Okay. So I like wandered into a store and they had fully boxed Dreamcasts. And I think the equivalent price would have been around 200 pounds when it was new like two to three hundred pounds yeah i picked mine up for 50 pounds makes which, sense which is about 70 75 dollars i think yeah so i oh sorry go yeah. on no i was just gonna say so i unfortunately as like the experience as an isolated thing held up like the games were still good i still that's why it's one of my favorite consoles of all time but unfortunately i missed the online craze because the servers were already obviously on their way out by that point yeah i had caught the console on the first day of release so i was it was one of the few consoles i got on first day actually maybe the only console I ever got on you know day one was only the dreamcast i think because like i had saved some money and um even though it was past my birthday I asked my mom if I could kind of like use my birthday plus Christmas present and just combine it into the Dreamcast if I give her some money. And I remember uh, my mom on her lunch break at work went over to, uh, what is it? I think it was KB Toy Store, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, she went there and she picked it up for me. I'll never forget 
I said to her, like, look, get the Dreamcast and get Sonic Adventure. She's like, yeah, I got it. And then when she was there, she listened to the people behind the desk and they're like, oh, you should totally get Blue Stinger. I don't even know if you know what Blue Stinger is. Yep. Which is essentially like a really shitty version of like Resident Evil, except it has like more body horror in it because of aliens. Yeah. And I remember distinctly um, at school, we had a payphone on the yard. So I don't know why we did, but we had a payphone. So I remember I called my mom. I was like, hey, mom, did you get the Dreamcast? She's like, yeah. I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And she's like, and I picked up Blue Stinger. I was like, oh my God. And like my heart just like fell into my stomach. I wanted to vomit. I was like, no, uh, no, no, no. You, you have to get Sonic Adventure. I don't want Blue Stinger. And my mom was like furious. And I was like, it's not my fault. Like you listen to the idiot there. You need to return it. And then my mom, she returned it and she switched it for Sonic Adventure because she realized it was kind of like a gift and it was her mistake. So I got to play Sonic Adventure. And I remember about a year later, I rented Blue Stinger. I beat that game and it was a huge disappointment. I knew yep. it would be horrible. But, oh, my God, if that was my first Dreamcast game, I don't think I would have fallen in love with that console. That game mm. was really bad. It was no, so bad. I never played <laughs> it, but I am fully aware of what it is, and I've seen, like, a lot of playthroughs of it. It looked... Yeah, if, if I'd have picked up my Dreamcast and got that, I'd be like, mm, yeah, no wonder this thing's dying. Yeah, it was a really bad title. But, you know, Sonic Adventure, I love that game. I still do. I think it's fun. <laughs> I mean... The Dreamcast, for me, is like, obviously it's got like the the stellar titles that everyone knows, like Sonic Adventure, Shenmue, Resident Evil, Jet Set Radio, Marvelous Capcom, Power Stone. But I also liked it for the lesser known titles. Uh, for example, Okay, sorry about that everyone, just had a little disconnect, so we'll just carry on from where we are and hopefully it shouldn't affect the podcast too much. Um, so as I was saying, like the Dreamcast had all its heavy hitters, it had like your Sonics, Shenmue, Resident Evil, Jet Set, Marvelous, Capcom, Street Fighter, they were all fantastic titles, they were absolutely amazing, but for me it was kind of the fact that we were still just in that era of experimentation just before people kind of started to phase it out so some of the lesser known titles were the ones i spent a lot of time with uh as a child and one of the things that always enamored me was the berserk franchise now i'm sure you know about my fondness for that blake yeah precisely not only did they release a berserk game for the dreamcast it was a originally written piece of media by the writer of Berserk, like the author. He went out of his way to create an original arc for this game. Me too. And the thing that made me laugh is this game came out before game. any Berserk media had made it to the West. So it wasn't called Berserk, it was called Sword of Berserk Guts Rage. Because they had no IP at that point for it to stand on. So calling it Berserk yeah. wouldn't have meant anybody anything to anyone. And <laughs> that game, it was fun to play, but the voice acting was absolute trash. And you had some real heavy hitters in there. Like, uh, what's his name? I think Clark something. The guy who does like tons of voice work for Kingdom Hearts and stuff like that. The uh, main actor... 
Yep. Oh, I'm not 100% sure on that. Hold on, was he an actor? Was he an actor? Uh, Might he be. Passed away, I'd right? have to Google it. Michael Clark Duncan? If it's him, he, he passed away. He was in, like, uh, uh, was it The Green Mile? Uh, and then, uh, and you remember friends. Legacy he of Kane? a bunch of voice acting on top of normal acting. Uh, the main character, Raziel, he was the voice for Guts. Yeah. So they had, like, quite a few, like, big-name game voice actors in uh, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was... Oh, oh yeah. Yep. And it had pseudo-nudity in it, too, right? So I loved that game, but Which was also obviously I had no reference points for any of these people. But the thing that I go back now and I look at and go, like, oh, that really annoys me now, is the main character is called Guts, but obviously in Japanese it's Gutsu. And they just have this horrible amalgamation of sometimes he'll say guts, sometimes he'll say gutsu, and then one time I swear I've even heard him say gatsu. So it's just all over the fucking place, but it's really yeah. interesting as a standalone title, and I remember when I was younger picking it up, and I must have beat that game like 30 times. I had that much fun with it, because it was this new... Kind of, I don't know who these characters are. What's this like dark medieval setting? And they even had the guy who made the, the like kind of classic battle themes, like from the um, anime. He composed the intro song for it as well. So they, uh, I can't remember his name. He's like a really famous Japanese songwriter. Who? He um, did the song Forces, which was kind of like the main battle charge song. And he went out of his way to compose the soundtrack for it, or at least some titles with him singing in it. So they did not spare any expense making this thing stand on its own. But I remember the one thing that marred it for me is, uh, for people who don't know what Berserk is, huh. the main character has like a eight-foot sword that he just like swings around and decimates everything. That game had collision detection with walls. And I remember a lot of the levels are prisons or tight corridors that Guts' sword would just clang off constantly. So it became near impossible to create, to defeat parts of that game seamlessly because you had a sword that was nearly as big as the environment you were in and it would catch on the walls. But despite that, I still had fun with it. Yeah, I remember that when I played that game. I remember if you're any type of tight quarter situation, when your sword would hit into a wall, nothing would end up happening, and then you'd end up taking a hit. And if I recall correctly, there'd be not a huge amount of enemies, at least, you know, when you compare, you know, a lot of games nowadays. Um, but for back then, it was a decent chunk of enemies. And I remember it was annoying, because you have to try and run to a little bit more of an open area. Because for everyone who doesn't know Berserk, his sword is bigger than he is. I mean, this sword is gigantic. It's bigger than, you know, Cloud Sword from Final Fantasy VII. So it was a pretty annoying thing. And then there was also your little fairy guy, kind of like Navi, except I think uh, he used to shit talk puck. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, not during the fight he wouldn't, but it was just all the cutscenes. It was really annoying. Yeah. And then Cassandra was in it, right? Or Casca? Was that her name? Oh, uh, yeah, Casca. And she was also the same, right? She was like a, a mute or deaf? Yeah, she was 
she was messed up from like the previous uh, Millennium arc. But think about it, as like a first time player of the game, you have this girl who's like she can't talk and she looks like, you know, she's a vegetable, but you have no clue what the hell's going on. Especially as a Western, you know, a Western who's never heard of Berserk. Yep, pretty much. And I think it was a smart move for where they did it as well, because it was still when it was just the three of them. Like uh they hadn't teamed up with like um the small boy or the witch girl or the royal and her servants at that point because where it is in the manga now there's like they're a team of kind of like six or seven yeah that would have been really confusing to keep track of so at least they just kept it to when it was the core three of them yeah i think it's good having a smaller group was a lot smarter but you know i remember playing the game i always wondered like what's up with this girl (laughs) yeah definitely and then uh I don't really think it's spoilers at this point, but the whole uh, story of that game is they've gone to see this guy because they believe he has something that could cure her uh, and bring her back to normal. And it does for a few seconds, and then that was kind of like the retcon for that standalone story because it only worked for like five minutes, and then she returned to normal, and they just move on to whatever else would have lined up with the manga at that time. Yeah. So... As I said, it was a, to me, it was a pretty decent standalone piece of media and was probably one of the main reasons I'm so into Berserk now because I saw that character and then when I started seeing like clips of him or like scans of the manga, I was like, oh, I know what this is. I'm like interested. I want to know more. And to this day, it's one of the only mangas I have like back in England that I have bothered to hunt down every volume and collect. Like, I don't have anything else other than... I think I have maybe some JoJo and that's it. Yeah. I didn't... Yeah, I learned years later that it was a manga series. And then it was all turned to an anime. But... Um... I never really bothered to watch it, to be honest. I think at that point, I was out of my anime phase. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, like I said, to this day, I, I don't really watch a lot of anime anymore. and Berserk and... Maybe Hajime no Ippo are the only ones I keep up with. But what's uh did you have any kind of So did you have any lesser known titles that you had a lot of fun with? Um lesser known titles not exactly. I will say that um there was the Gundam game from Dreamcast. And I remember it was, at the time, Gundam Wing was really big in America. And uh, this new Gundam game that came out, I think it was based on the old school Gundam anime. And I remember I bought it. Yeah, I bought it. Because I was like, I was pretty interested. It's like, oh, wow, I get to play as a Gundam. And since Gundam was huge, I thought it was pretty fun. And I call it lesser known, because at the time, even though Gundam Wing was getting to be like a bigger deal... It's- it still was. I would I was say, say is this the Gundam like, one where it's like know, they're all kind of grayscale and it's a bit more gritty realism? Sure. It wasn't. Hmm? So I know they had that side story 00, like uh, 0079 sure. or something. It's first person. The whole game is first person. And you have- no, the Dreamcast game, so I don't know if that's the one you're on about. You mean the oh, anime? Okay. 08th MS team? No, this one is like first person. It was the only one that was issued and at least released in the West. So basically it's first person and you're placed into a city. 
and you have to find like all the enemies. So, you know, in the game you could destroy buildings, but it had really funky controls because you had two different arms. And if I remember correctly, uh, mm. each side of the controller controlled the arms. So you could like kind of punch, you could pull out your sword, you could stab and stuff like that. You could block with the shield. But um, it was kind of unique because, you know, the controller was used for both like moving, but also moving your arms. So I think you had to use everything, the D-pad, the analog stick, the triggers, all the buttons. So I remember that game was really, really difficult to play because, you know, the Dreamcast only had like one, two, three, yeah. four, five, six. And if you include the D-pad, seven, eight, nine, ten buttons outside of the start button, because, you know, the joystick didn't have, you couldn't press it down as a button like you can with like playstation so at the time you know you had way less buttons but i used to play that game a lot i really liked that game a lot and most people i know never really played it or didn't know much about it because like i said it wasn't gundam wing it was just old school gundam so if you ever yeah. in you know tokyo you used to have like that giant gundam statue in odaiba i think a lot of people have seen that online before now it's been changed but it was like that old style Gundam, that traditional looking one. So I remember I was really unfamiliar with that aspect of the franchise, but I liked it a lot. Um, I can't really think of any yeah. other games I played that was that were too under the radar. I mean, there was Choo Choo Rocket. But I think Choo Choo Rocket was pretty big at the time. And then I owned loads and loads of... Uh, uh, the fighting games. Oh, I had Cannon Spike, which goes for a lot of money nowadays. So I think Cannon Spike was pretty low key at the time, but I didn't really play it too much. It played like uh, Smash TV. Us, uh, yeah, Smash TV. I remember that. Um, Did you play Cannon Spike or know of it? Um, not hundred percent. The name's not ringing a bell. Let me just have a quick look. Cannon Spike. Nope, I did not have Cannon Spike. Japan is Gunspike. Nope, I never played that one. I mean, uh, I think one of the lesser known more arcadey ones that I played would have been Out Trigger. I don't know if you had that oh. one. It was kind of a third person slash first person like Unreal Tournament style game. Okay. Um, and you basically were just given kind of a few objectives to complete, but it was very arcadey. Like uh, the objectives were like kill a certain amount of opponents in a set amount of time or be the first to reach like 10 frags things like that but it was really fast paced yeah. and a lot of fun uh i mean some other ones would have been uh what's it called mocking mocking x no no um mocking x was again i think it was uh, a shin megami tensei thing hmm. so the i mean if you like look up the box art for it it's it's like you can see that it looks super like Persona and uh, Devil Summoner and things like that. But again, yeah. like you said, the reason I um, thought it was a game that was quite different from the time was it was all played in first person. So it was a first yeah. person like sword combat game. So it kind of took the huh. ideas that I guess maybe were pioneered in the Ocarina of Time where you'd lock onto a target and then you could strafe around them. You had ducks, jumps, like slides, sidesteps. And it just became this really kind of quite fun one-on-one -on -one dueling thing. Yeah. Which did kind of shit its pants every time more than one enemy showed up at a single time because the game huh. was not designed for you to quickly take down an enemy and then move on to the other one. Like, every encounter was kind of like a little challenge. Yeah. But, yeah, I remember, again, 
Like, because I think I was just at that age where, like I said, the Dreamcast was on its way out. So a lot of the lesser known titles were just going for dirt cheap. So I just picked up a ton of them and kind of steered clear for the longest time of things like Sonic or Shenmue or Street Fighter because they were still selling for a, a relatively decent price. So yeah. as a kid with like a small amount of pocket money, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll like pick up these like weird looking titles instead. I think the only like other weird games I guess I could say I remember was like Psychic Force 2021. Oh, yeah. So I remember, I think I owned that game as well. I like that one because that was a unique fighting game. Um, that was a port of, I think, Psychic Force 2 on the PlayStation 1. Oh, uh, no, it was a sequel. Oh, okay, because I had Psychic Force 1 and 2 on the PS1, and yeah. this one looks super similar to the second one, so I didn't bother picking that one up. It was pretty fun. I like that game. You could... It had fun controls, especially if you were flying around. It made sense. It's better than, you know, what Dragon Ball had at the time. Yeah, um, definitely. Trying to think, what else was there? Didn't they have that, like, kind of, like, Gran Turismo cel-shaded game? Auto Modulista or Modulisto? Hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was a racing game. Everything was cel-shaded. It was because, re- you know, at the time, Jet Set Radio had come out. And it really blew people's like minds because it was the first time Cell Shade had been done well. I know there's other games before it, and then they made this like racing. It could have been PS2, but I think it was first for Dreamcast. I I know what you're on about, and I do remember seeing it on PS2, but I'm not a hundred percent sure I ever saw it on Dreamcast. So I don't know if it was like a on its way out type thing. But I do know yeah. the game that you're on about. Also. I'm pretty sure you guys had it, because I think it was a UK product, but um, do you remember Bleemcast? Bleemcast. Yeah. Okay, if you don't know it, I'll just explain it. Bleemcast basically allowed you to play pirated games, Uh... or also play PlayStation games on your Dreamcast. That's why it was called Bleemcast. And it used to be sold in actual video game stores. So, for example, like Resident Evil 2... Uh, they actually had a specific Resident Evil 2 game which would work on the Dreamcast. So it was like Bleemcast Presents Resident Evil 2, I believe. So it was the actual original PlayStation port, but they coded it for Dreamcast and they were able to improve the graphics because of the Dreamcast's hardware. Oh, wow. And they had all these different things. And I remember as a kid being kind of shocked, like, oh my God, how are they doing this and getting away with it? And then there was legal matters, and it got taken out of most video game stores. But at the time, you could purchase it. And it was pretty cheap, like $10 or so. Yeah, I remember there was like a, a big pirating scene around the Dreamcast because of the GD-ROMs they used weren't copy-protected or something. Something to do with the console. So they, all you literally had to do was just rip the game to another disc, and you could shove it straight in the system. And you wouldn't yeah. need to modify it in any way, shape, or form, which was obviously another huge detractor from sega's market when they were trying to sell games for it because they'd only shift a few initial units the people who knew what they were doing would pirate it and then circulate it and then that would be the end of it yeah so that's what that was pretty interesting that you know this thing existed at the time and you could buy it at an actual store because nowadays there'd be lawsuits out the ass if they were selling something like that for, you know, PlayStation 4, Xbox One. That would be so incredibly legal. But at the time, there was some type of 
gray area that they could kind of work with and it could be legally sold in a store at least for a time which i thought was pretty stunning yeah i mean i'm looking at a few of the shots now of like the side by sides on playstation and then on dreamcast or bleamcast sorry and that's pretty impressive but i don't think i ever saw it in the store yeah this is something you could purchase. Like I said, it was pretty cheap. I remember the original Bleem cast with nothing on it, just for you to kind of play pirated games or PlayStation 1 games. It was like 10 bucks, but their official Bleem cast games were more like 20 or $30. Mm. I think I own Resident Evil 2 uh, for the Bleem cast and maybe something else. I can't recall. But um, speaking of these types of things... Um, do you remember or have any fond memories of the VMU or visual memory unit? Uh, for me, it would be Sonic Adventure 2 with the Chow Garden. Because... So did you used to carry it around? I did. The Tamagotchi? I did. Did you? But unfortunately, where I was living at the time, everyone had waited for the PS2. So I was the weird kid walking around with this Dreamcast thing. So the only other person I knew who had one was one of my friends, and my brother had his own VMU as well. So it was literally just the three of us. So we'd take them to school, or we'd meet up after school, or obviously I'd be at home with my brother, and we would just trade and play the games on that. So again, like I said, I was really late to the party with the Dreamcast, so any initial craze that would have been surrounding that wherever I lived... I'd missed it by a, a large margin. Yeah. What did you think of the actual VMU? Because uh, for people who don't know, the VMU, this visual memory unit, actually went into your controller. Your controller had two ports in it, so you can put in two memory units. So nothing saved to a memory card like you would think on a PlayStation where you just pop it in old school or at least with now modern systems to a hard drive. I liked it. I thought it was a... Uh, oh, excuse me. I thought it was a real, I'm hesitant to use the word novel because it sounds like a throwaway thing, but I thought it was a really good idea of taking something as mundane and normal of, uh, this is just for storing your data to something that could be used to play standalone titles or mini games to something that it also, depending on the game, kind of displayed information relevant to the game as well. Like I think... A few shooter games would display the ammo counter on there. Uh, Resident Evil, I know, displayed your health. Yeah. Um, I think Power Stone, I don't remember if it did anything in the game, but it had like three or four standalone titles that you could install onto the VMU and play those without the game, which I thought yeah. was pretty cool. But yeah, I absolutely loved them. I thought they were fantastic. The only thing that annoyed me was every time you fired at the console, if they didn't have a working battery in them, they'd make that horrible beep sound when they powered on. Oh. So every time... Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, if you have even just two controllers plugged in with four VMUs in it, you get this ear-piercing, like, beeping sound when all four of them jump back to life because... Uh, Due to how small they were, they used watch batteries, like the little circular disc ones, which yeah. they weren't cheap and they weren't easy to come by unless you kind of went to like a specialist shop. So more often than not, your VMU would die because it ate batteries like no one's business. 
and then they had this horrible high-pitched noise every time they fired up. I recall that, um, I don't know, I felt like my VMU lasted pretty a long time, but maybe it died and I just got so used to the sound that I don't recall it well, but, um... I did purchase the official Sega 4 to- 4X battery or 4 times battery, uh, not battery, memory card, yep. which had a little blue button on top and it had four lights. So when you'd fill up one, you hit it and you go to the second light, which represented the second memory. So you had like four in one, which was pretty cool, but you didn't have a screen on it, so you couldn't play any of the games. Mm. But I remember one of the best parts about the VMU was that um, with the Dreamcast, as some people may or may not know, it was one of the first consoles to have an actual, like, start menu, in a sense. Yeah. You know, you turn on the console, and you could, like, listen to a CD, you could change the time, and then there was the internet browser disc, which I had, and I had the actual keyboard, so you could browse the internet, and there used to be this famous Dreamcast site called, like, Buyaka, I believe it's called, yeah, Buyaka, or maybe Buyakasha, Anyways, they used to house loads and loads of save files. So using your browser, you could actually just download a save file off your internet browser onto the VMU, and you could just play any game you want using that save file. So you're like, oh, I don't have time to like beat this game because I have a one-day rental. Cool, I'll just download the save, and I can play through the game with a bunch of different items, or I can see the ending immediately, Yeah. or play New Games Plus. And I thought it was pretty unique, because something like PlayStation 2, which came out a little bit later you needed to buy a special little machine to place in a memory card and do these types of memory swaps. With the VMUs, you could either download saves off the internet or you could attach two VMUs together because they have like this special serial port and you could actually just swap saves, which I thought was pretty great. Also taking a friend's house, you could use your save file. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that was closest to that was uh, I know some PlayStation magazines used to put CDs with preloaded save data on them. And you could yeah. move the data from the CD to the memory card. Dreamcast did that too. Yeah. So yeah, it was, like I said, it had a lot going for it. And I really regret not being able to pick one up as and when they came out. Because even though I had a ton of fun with the games, I had like uh, so many, like um, when I go back to England, one of the things I'm going to do is finish off my Dreamcast collection. Because my second largest one next to my PlayStation I just love doing it. I love having nights where I just bring people over and we put in things like Power Stone or Street Fighter or uh, Marvel vs. SNK. There's so many good titles on that machine, which I think brings us to something that might be nice to close this section out is uh, just going off from what we were doing with Kurt. Maybe you can just give me a, a quick top three of your Dreamcast games, Blake, and a little reasoning for them. Oh, I'll be honest. I don't. I can't really say what my top three games are for Dreamcast because generally speaking, I liked all the games. Mm. There wasn't one that I particularly liked more than the other. I guess... Just give me three standouts then. Um, I don't know. guess Capcom vs. SNK2, Jet Set Radio. Uh, maybe Choo Choo Rocket, I guess. <laughs> don't sound too sure on that last one. Well, because the thing is that, like I said... Generally speaking, the Dreamcast for me is more like, it was one of the few consoles where I could say I liked everything so much that it was hard for me to choose. Yeah, It'd be the same thing if someone said for Super Nintendo. I could probably choose standout titles, but I probably would have a really difficult time saying which Super Nintendo games I liked. No. They were the two consoles where it's like 
everything was so good. I mean, I have a list up in front of me and just scrolling through this, I'll just rattle off some of the names of my favorite titles because uh, as Blake said, it's kind of hard just to choose three. You got Sonic Adventures, Shenmue, Code Veronica, Resident Evil, Marvelous Capcom, Fantasy Star, Power Stone, Soul Calibur, Jojo, uh, SNK vs. Capcom, Crazy Taxi, friggin' uh, Spider-Man, I know that got ported, House the Dead, Quake 3, um, yeah, Sword of the Berserk, Zombie Revenge, Project Just, it just goes on and on and on. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, before we sign out, which is, what did you think of the Dreamcast controller? Because I think that's an important thing to consider during this time period. You had PlayStation, which was still using the D-pad, switched over to DualShock, which now has, you know, the two joysticks or analog sticks, however you want to call it. Then you had the N64, which brought in the their version, which is more of an analog stick. And then you had the Dreamcast controller, which is based on the Saturn controller. But that controller did bring a lot of nuance to the future of, you know, I'd say any console. So first off, I thought it was a comfortable controller. I felt it sat in my hand nicely. I liked the placement of the triggers. Uh, the buttons were all easily reachable. And generally speaking, whenever I pick it up, it's pretty easy to get back into grips with it. Now, the things I will say that I don't like were the cable. I have no idea why the cable was in the bottom. And they came up with that little kind of divot behind the memory card yeah. so it would sit forwards. But that thing never stayed in there. It would always fall out. The, yeah. the other thing I didn't like was, again, like fair play, this was before it became mainstream, was a single analog stick. Mm -hmm. It was a really weird choice going into the third dimension of gaming to only have and obviously the pc had been around for a while and we've been using wasd and a mouse which kind of i guess essentially lays the same idea of having a control stick for strafing forward back and one for looking around yeah so i never understand why they didn't adopt that and then the d-pad it was a solid d-pad but I always felt it was really sharp and kind of robustly made to the point where it was almost painful to use if your finger slid off onto the corner of it. Yeah. So for me, it was kind of like, I enjoyed using it and it felt good, but maybe this is just looking back from maybe where we are now, but I know the PlayStation and even the SNES had it. It was, it felt weird not having shoulder buttons. It, mm -hmm. it felt really weird that my fingers were just resting on top of the controller, not doing anything. But I really enjoyed the triggers. Uh, I will say that if you bought a third-party controller, those were the first things to go every time. Like, the triggers yeah. would just bust, and the spring would go, and they would slide all the way in instead of just pivoting. So, yeah. my personal thought is... I think it's nostalgia goggles mostly. The Dreamcast controller is good. I enjoy using it, but I am very aware of its flaws and its shortcomings. It's kind of interesting, actually. The reason why I wanted to bring it up was because one, there's certain aspects of the controller I thought were interesting. One, the controller was actually designed based on the console itself. Yep. 
So the start button was an upside down, was sorry, not upside down, was a triangle, which mimicked the console's triangle, which was the startup light. Mm. And there was a circle in the center of the controller, which also mimicked the circle on the Dreamcast, which is for the disc tray to open. Yep. Because it was a top console. So I thought that was a really unique take on it. I thought it looked really good, like presentably. Um, I felt the controller was all right. For whatever reason, it used to hurt my pinkies. Yep. My friends would complain about the same thing. Um, the dual stick thing I don't think mattered. Because I remember at the time, only PlayStation had done it. And I always felt that the dual stick thing didn't make a lot of sense. Because many games didn't really implement the dual stick. Yeah, some did, granted. But not a lot did. It wasn't until PlayStation 2 that people started using dual sticks a lot more. So I felt that was fine. Um, however, one thing I wanted to say was that I felt the triggers was like the smartest idea. Because personally, like I liked shoulder buttons. And I felt that when PlayStation added, you know, their control with two shoulder buttons, like, yeah, it's not a bad idea. It was a lot better implemented than the GameCube's three shoulder buttons. I did not like that. Yeah. But GameCube kind of had like a weird trigger thing. Yep. But the Dreamcast trigger felt pretty good to hit. It granted it was pretty hard when you pushed it down, but I love the trigger and also, uh, the analog stick being closer to your finger made the most sense to me. And then you know, obviously, GameCube follows suit, and so did Xbox. But PlayStation kept up with their let's keep it further away from the thumb. Yeah, which didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but. That was something that I always thought was really cool about the Dreamcast, that they implemented these things. Then also, yeah, the little slot for the VMU I thought was pretty smart, but the uh, cable coming from the bottom of the controller was a pretty bizarre idea. I figured it was because of the uh, VMU slots. They couldn't do it. And like you said, that's little kind of ditch or a little <sighs> catch. Yeah, there you go. Cable catch in the back was like a poor man's like implementation ditch. of trying to do it. My friends and I used to just put tape, just use like electric tape and just put it on the back. Like, yeah, done. <laughs> Whatever. It's not going to fall out anymore. I think you should uh, go to Sega with that. Copyright that idea. The Sega ditch. Official yeah, Sega ditch. But yeah. Um, I mean, like you said, yeah, it looks nice. It stands out. It's iconic. Uh, and I also like the fact that they still went with... Obviously, it's not really an issue these days. The uh, four controller input as standard. Oh, that was smart. Cause, it was really smart. Yeah, those kind of consoles, like Sega maybe have lost the games race, uh, like the hardware race, sorry. And Sony and Nintendo back in the day, Sony I always felt was the more solid single player platform. But if you ever talk about good times with multiplayer, it is always the N64. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because all you needed was your own controller. You go around, you plug it in, boom, done. No extra wires, no nothing. Just shove it in and go. And I think yeah. the Dreamcast capitalized on that as well. Uh, obviously, as I said, like a few titles before always stand out to me for that was Power Stone 2. Uh, what else? Choo Choo Rocket was four player. Uh, Zombie Revenge was three. Zomb I think. Yeah, Zombie Revenge. Uh, so they made good use of it and i had a lot of fun with those kinds of things and as you said the triggers well look where we are now both Everything. xbox and playstation now use triggers so it was obviously a design choice that stuck so it's not like sega made this thing and everyone was like oh it's fucking dead in the water no one's ever going to remember this thing 
And then every year you always get the rumors of, oh, Sega's making a Dreamcast 2. Because yeah. people want it, but I don't know if people would buy it. Yeah, I think just make a Dreamcast Mini or something, people would probably appreciate that as a throwback. Yeah, definitely. And uh, But, you know, who knows? I mean, I don't know if I'm right, but I believe people are still making games for the Dreamcast. Ah, uh, like, like home- independent yeah. makers and stuff? Yeah, I've heard that. There's like some Jap. There's like some Japanese guy who released a Dreamcast game like a year or two ago. Yeah, it was. Uh, hold on. Let me... The most recent one is called Tanglewood. Oh no, that's for the. Uh, that? That's for the Mega Drive. Sorry, Xeno Crisis was released in 2010. That was like an independent okay. one. I know what you mean. There was uh, another most recent one, but. Hey, a new Dreamcast game is coming in 2020, so people are still working on it. Yeah. Like, there is a, a bunch of games that are being... and They look absolutely amazing. Like, uh, after we're done, go look at Xeno Crisis. Like, the sprite work looks ridiculous. Uh, I'll check that one. And that, there's people, like, making there's some Shantae-looking kind of game. Uh, some 3D... A kind of genocider type game it's called so people are still actively making fan projects for this thing and they're not like yeah. shitty little flash games they actually look pretty decent so a lot of love yeah it's that thing of people are still making games for it because they want this thing to if not remain relevant at least remain in the public's mind and yeah. to keep the love going for it and I think that's, uh, I mean, how many consoles can you say that boast that kind of community? Maybe Super Nintendo as well. Yeah. That's about it. And Nintendo, probably. I can only think of those. Precisely. So it was kind of, even though this, and I've seen, especially in Japan, like if you go to Akiba and go to Trader, I've seen a couple of these in the store as well. Yeah. Like that. And Dreamcast games still hold value. Oh, God, yeah. Like, uh, I've got. Uh, I can't I remember off the top of my head, but I've got so both the rival schools. I don't think I ever got Street Fighter yet. Um, both Power Stones, one of the Shenmue's. Like, those games go for a fair bit of money, and the price is only going to keep going up and up and up because obviously there's only yeah. so many in circulation. So it is uh, very much at this point... It's treading a weird gap between collector's item and still relevant piece of media because people are actively creating things for it. Yeah. Well, it's the hipster's console, really. <laughs> That's the best way to think of it. It's hipster's console, but um, one thing I want to say about the Dreamcast is the Dreamcast was revolutionary. I believe they were the first console to create a fishing reel controller, if you've ever seen it, for Sega Bass Fishing. Yeah, they were the actual... first motion controllers as well. Yeah, pretty astounding stuff when you think about it, at least from a modern context. Well, I had, um, I didn't have the fishing rod, but I had the Dream Blaster for House of the Dead. Yeah. Because they had to, I remember there was all that thing, they had to change it to really look like a toy because it was just after the Columbine shooting. Yeah. And they had to, in fact, I remember, I can't remember which game it was, but some games had light gun functionality taken out of them in America because of that. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, they still had it intact. So that, to me, was, like, an astounding thing that it was, like, 
we were still in that area of, oh, if you give a kid a plastic piece of gun and he's shooting at a TV screen, he's going to be the next, like, spree killer. Yeah, I had um, Typing of the Dead as well, yep. which is, like, one of the first consoles that have, like, an actual keyboard that you plug in. Yeah, never play that game against a programmer. It's, oh, it's, dude, that game is the best. It's cheating. Nah, that game is amazing. So good. But, yeah. And all the characters had, like, some weird backpack with a floating keyboard in front of them. Oh, uh, and they had a Dreamcast on their back. It was a Dreamcast with, yeah. like, a triple A, uh, AA battery stuck to the top of it. Something like that. It was amazing. I mean, have you Brilliant. have you been into an arcade and actually seen that here? Yeah, I've played it a few times in Japan. Yeah, there's... I'm pretty... I can get, I can get towards the end of the game on just one credit. Yeah. The only, obviously, hard thing is, like, it's all in English, but it's Japanese words... Yeah, it's all Romaji. So it's kind of hard to type those words because it's combinations that you're not used to unless you're like a pretty prolific touch typer. My my issue the game was that they use a Japanese keyboard and that's where I have a lot of issues because some of the actual keys have been shifted around. Yep. Like, um, So that's where I usually have it. And then sometimes they have it set where instead of using what is it, Romaji for typing? So, for example, A is A. Instead, they'll have the Japanese input. So you have to know where the uh, A symbol yeah. is on the keyboard. And if it's that, I can't play it. It has to be Quality. you know Western layout where I'm like, okay, I got it. I can do this. Yep. But yeah, uh, I, I mean, I spoke to my uh, f- Japanese friends about that. And I've always asked them, like, why do they have those symbols all over the keys? Do you actually use them to type like that? And they're like, no, I don't know anyone who types using the uh, katakana or hiragana keys, it's always, like, romanji for, yeah. for typing. Yeah, I think it's, like, an old people thing. Yeah, but it's, like, it's just a weird thing to me because I've never seen anyone do it, ever. Yeah. But uh, I think we have exhausted most of our Dreamcast fanboyism. I think we're just rambling at this point again. So uh, thank you everyone very much for joining us on this retrospective. This was kind of supposed to be the 10th episode special, but obviously we had Kurt on, which was a nice change of pace. So this is kind of to make up for the fact of us hitting double digits. And also we now have over 100 listens. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thank you everyone. So as always, it's been fantastic and we will see you next time. So goodbye for now. Peace out.